doing well today. All right, well, let's get started here. Uh, thanks everyone for joining. Uh, today, I'm Lucas Alvarez. I'm here with Sam and together we're gonna host August AIJ Atlanta Insider. We're both the in-house committee from the Atlanta chapter and I currently work at GNA as a sustainability consultant, helping companies navigate their way to sustainability. Also here with Sam, who is our genius tech and helps with all the other stuff that we do for the insider. So she's going, she's in the background there. Um, today we have a great, yeah, oh, there we go. Thank you, Sam. We have a great interview today with Sam Duncan Watt. Uh, he has over 14 years of industry experience. He works to help companies and organizations to implement strategic campaigns with engagement and impact at its core utilizing creative innovative approaches that create products and platforms with a mission of transformation and base growth. He has won many awards for his work and has been helping CARE re-envision its brand and marketing arm by leading a team of designers, content creators, strategists, social media experts, and storytellers to launch new innovative initiatives, campaigns designed for the public uh, engagement and a brand new refresh for the brand across 95 offices, impacting over 6,500 people across the organization. So really big impact. So before we dive into the conversation, as always, uh, I'd like to thank our Atlanta AIG in-house team here. Uh, we're small but mighty. If you work in in-house or if you have a vested interest in in-house and want to get involved, please feel free to reach out to me uh, and we'll shoot that email here later. Uh, I'm the chair of the board and the best person to contact to learn more. So if you're interested, reach out to me and I'll help find a way for you to help us. And on that note, I'm gonna hand it off to Amy. How are you doing, Amy? I'm great. I'm excited to share the August Market Minute with everyone. Amy Mangan from Robert Half Marketing and Creative. And we have one bit of... Um, scoop for you from Atlanta. So Nike has announced that they are looking, exploring potential office space here in Atlanta. And that would be for corporate, um, like a Southeast corporate headquarters. So kind of exciting, not a done deal yet, but we're going to cross our fingers that we get some Nike here. So that'd be cool. Um, also, the rest of my slides are focusing around the 2021 Q3 demand for skilled talent. So this is a much greater report. It's a free resource for everyone. There's a lot of good stuff in here. And I am going to preemptively apologize for the like crazy busy slides. But what are you going to do? It's good info that I got to share with you guys. So in the top right corner, you'll see the updated unemployment rate from June, which is down below 6%. Now that is all industries, right? So when we're looking at creative and marketing, it's much lower. If you skip over to the left side with the top marketing and creative positions, these are the unemployment rates. So ad managers are below a half percent. That's insane. Um, tech writers and copywriters are below 2%. 
web developers. I want to point out about web developers. A lot of companies are actually coding digital designers, essentially, even if they're touching like HTML as a web developer. So that's what gets reported to the Bureau of Labor and Statistics. So if you're a digital designer, you may actually be lumped in with that. So below 2%, it's pretty wild. And then we've also seen a big dip in um, the unemployment rate for the marketing specialists as well. And I see that reflected in all of the requests we're getting for marketing spe specialists um, to be hired through Robert Half right now. So in this survey, we, um, we asked our clients what their top um, three hiring challenges are right now. And so the number one response was just finding the right people with the right skill set. I think that goes without saying with these unemployment rates so low, it's not a huge surprise that it's been a challenge to find good talent. Um, additionally, companies are posting great jobs, but they're getting a, they're having a hard time getting people to actually apply to them, which is um, you know something we hear a lot when people call us. And then lastly is just being able to move quickly enough through the process process in order to actually land the best talent. So many clients call us very frustrated because they've put out two or three offers and they're actually either accepted and later rescinded or um, they're turned down simply because the company couldn't move fast enough and they'd already gotten something else. Um, also on the right, you'll see about half of marketing professionals say that they feel that their career stalled during the pandemic. And even more than that, say they plan to ask for a promotion and or a raise this year. And it's not in any of my slides, but it's recent research that we did specific to creative and marketing leaders who say 75% of them are planning to look for a new job in the next 12 months. So if you add all these numbers together, there's going to be continue to be a lot of change and shift in our industry. Um, on the next slide, there's a lot of great information just about hiring plans and strategies. So companies told us what they plan to do moving forward in the next second half of 2021. So many of them, more than half, are adding new permanent positions. Um, almost half are also planning to backfill any vacated roles or bringing back furloughed people. Realistically, the minute they call those furloughed people, they'll realize they already have taken other jobs and they're going to just be back filling empty jobs. That's what's going to happen there. And only 2% of companies are still on a hiring freeze at this point. Um, the top five industries that are hiring, now this doesn't mean that financial people necessarily are getting hired. It means companies in the financial industry. So it could be a designer, you know, an insurance company or something. So we've seen a lot of jobs coming out of the finance, insurance, and real estate industries. And I would say that's been reflected in our Atlanta market as well. Manufacturing has been very hot. And again, could be for creative and marketing roles. Um, technology, of course, construction has been hopping and transportation and public utilities also have really rebounded very quickly uh, as well. And then on the bottom um, part of this slide, what it's basically telling us is what companies told us they've had to shift or change since January of 2021 in terms of their hiring process. So almost half of these companies have completely shifted to a fully remote hiring uh, interview and onboarding process. Many of them don't require people to come on site at all whatsoever, at least not for now. Um, about 40% had um, started posting roles directly to diversity focused sites and online networks. Um, I know we've done that at Robert Half. We've really um, 
and many of our clients have put a big investment in trying to post their jobs in places that they weren't before to attract a more uh, diverse range of talent. And then about 40% said that they're searching in a wider geographical net. So oftentimes now I will get jobs with companies that are in Atlanta, but they're willing to see talent from Raleigh, from Charlotte, um, and other Southeast cities because there would be very minimal need to be on site, but it could be a short trip. Um, also, um, for about 40% are increase, increasing or have increased the use of temporary or contract professionals. And again, it's not on this slide, but specific to creative and marketing, 75% of creative and marketing leaders say that they plan to, over the next six months, utilize freelance and contract help to plug holes. It's taking way longer to backfill roles. It's taking way longer to fill brand new roles that have been created. So that work is going somewhere and you want to make sure that it's not rolling off onto the rest of your team or even onto yourself, because then that creates burnout and future retention issues, which furthers the issue. So lots of companies are leveraging freelance and contract to make sure that their execution level work still gets done, thus freeing up the team for real, truly conceptual work, and also to take the time to do the interviewing that's going to need to occur to fill the full-time roles. Um, and then many companies have uh, gotten smart and really shortened their hiring process. So they've been able to cut a few steps out. I think with video interviews, that's definitely helping. There's a lot less logistics and making sure everybody's available and everything. You can move through that process a lot quicker and thus hopefully get the best talent very quickly and get offers out fast. And lastly, we're still seeing a lot of fully remote jobs being advertised, not just here, but across the country. But I will say that Atlanta, the Atlanta market's really being tapped for virtual talent from the Northeast, as well as um, in the, the West Coast. We're seeing tons of companies posting jobs here that say, based in Atlanta, 100% remote, no travel. So that's what's happening. There's a lot more to this report that would be interesting to anyone in a, uh, any position, whether you are an individual contributor or in a leadership position, and it's a free resource. So if you'd like to contact me to set up some time to review the whole thing, go for it. My contact info is on the next page, or you can hit me up on LinkedIn Messenger, whatever's clever. And with that, I'm going to hand it back to Lucas. Awesome. Thank you, Amy. Uh, I can definitely relate to some of those stats. I am a full-time remote working out of a New York-based office, so it's definitely happening, and it's there's a lot of talent out there right now and a lot of uh, change in the job shift, so it's really great to hear and see those numbers, especially for creatives. And without further ado, I'd like to introduce Salmon, uh, Salmon, Simon, Simon Duncan Watt. Please join us. Hey. <laughs> hey, Simon. How's it going? Good, good. Awesome. Well, you know, we're really happy to have you here today. I enjoyed getting to know you, uh, preparing for this webinar. Um, today's focus really is on working with what you're given to make something not only compelling, but heartfelt. So oftentimes client budgets are primarily dictated what the ultimate product can be uh, or what a team can actually create. So working with a nonprofit budget is always a top of mind. However, that doesn't mean you have to sacrifice quality. So Simon is a master at working with budget to achieve something moving. Uh, if a project needs something, he'll find the best way to achieve it within the guidelines and be able to uh, get there. But before we get into the process, tips and tricks, uh, I would love Simon for you to give us a little bit of your background uh, and tell us a little of your past and how you ended up at CARE. Yeah, great. Um, so I grew up in, Sydney, Australia. 
Um, my nickname for some people in Australia was Salmon, so <laughs> it, wasn't, oh, perfect. it wasn't too hard to hear that. Um, <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I grew up with a great love of you know cinema. I loved films. Uh, I was obsessed um, as a teenager with that form of storytelling. Um, so I went to film school um, when, I got, when I got out of school. Uh, I did a like a media arts production undergrad um, at UTS. And I had this sort of vision that I was going to be, you know, Kubrick. Um, but as when I, you know, got in there, I started to really develop this um, this passion for activism and advocacy, uh, taking part in, you know, uh, a lot of activism happening on the campus and really understanding, uh, you know, more about what was happening around the world with climate change and, you know, at home with, you know, refugee rights and land rights and stuff and. I sort of began to find this way to sort of mold my passion for storytelling and filmmaking with, you know, my passion for activism and advocacy in terms of being able to tell the stories of, of the people who are, you know, at the, you know, leading in activism and also the people who are being impacted by like unfair governmental policies and sort of, you know, cultural institutions. Um, so when I got, when I got out of school, I went to Denmark for COP15. Um, because I wanted to tell the stories of the people who were there. And it was there that I met um, Simon Sheikh, who was the, the leader of this small activist organization uh, in Australia called GetUp. Um, but they were like a half million member organization. So it was actually quite large, but the amount of people in the organization was very small. And I came on as sort of the creative director there, which meant that I was the designer, <laughs> I was the videographer, I was the editor, I was the campaigner. Like I did everything. I didn't really have a team. <laughs> Um, but that really sort of um, put into, it really helped sort of um, develop my scrappiness around creative strategies. Like, what can I do with 200 bucks? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you know, uh, and it was really an exciting, fun challenge to find ways to sort of utilize storytelling to create impact fast. So we did a lot of like rapid response campaigning stuff. So if something would happen in the news cycle at 7 a.m. and by one o'clock we were, releasing a press release, but then would release like a video with it and some sort of like a campaign page and it might be a stunt um, that went along with that. So it was a really fun, exciting sort of place to sort of develop my process around how to think quickly, strategically and creatively around like opportunities to create impact really, really fast. Um, I did the election cycle there um, as well, which was great, which, you know, obviously required a lot of content. Um, and at the time, like, this is like late 2000, like nine to 11, something like that. Um, you know, YouTube was really popular. Facebook was like coming of age in terms of like content sharing and stuff like that. So we're really sort of finding ways to engage new audiences at that time, utilizing these digital strategies that hadn't really been utilized for advocacy that much at that, at that point. Um, that's when I released the It's Time video, uh, which is probably one of my most successful <laughs> videos, uh, which was an LGBT inspired equal marriage um, video. We released it on a Friday in response to us urging the local government who was advocating at the time to, to win the election to make sure that uh, equal marriage was part of their policy um, that they would actually like run the election on. Um, the video uh, got really, really fast, uh, you know, viewings and ratings started getting shared by like Madonna and Stephen Fry and Ellen and stuff. And it was really, really popular. It got 16 million views. And um, because of public pressure, media around that, 
um, and um, you know, actually politicians having to respond to the video, the party did actually change their party platform to include equal marriage in two weeks. And it was like, wow, That's this is content can do this. Yeah, <laughs> it was really exciting. Um, and so that to sort of, I'm going on a lot about it, but this led me to New York and I started working for Purpose, which is a, a social good agency. Um, and I had this real privilege and beautiful opportunity to work across with incredible clients across like gun safety rights where, by launching the Every Town for Gun Safety organization um, and then working, you know, on climate change stuff with the IKEA Foundation. I mean, it was, you know, it was really, it was a really wonderful experience. And that eventually led me to then working with the Syria campaign uh, where we launched the sort of the White Helmets Nobel Peace Prize campaign. Um, so, I mean, it was just a lot of fun, interesting places that took me all around the world. Um, and eventually like I got to CARE because um, CARE for me was just like this really amazing organization that was doing incredible work. Like it's in, a, it's in over a hundred countries around the world, as you mentioned, has over a thousand programs impacting, impacting like hundreds of millions of lives every year um, to basically you know, defeat poverty and achieve social justice. But not a lot of people had actually heard of this organization. So I thought it was like this really wonderful opportunity to come in and help to sort of tell the stories of the people that CARE is impacting, tell the stories of women and girls who are being empowered through this work and, um, and really shine a light on this organization. Um, and so that's sort of what I've been doing for the last four plus years now. That's incredible. I mean, yeah. And for four years of that and then your previous uh experience it just goes to show you you know it doesn't take a giant group uh if you activate the right um tools you can make anything kind of happen i i love the direction it's it was forward thinking at the time and that's a, a big focus now a lot of social justice obviously and uh, sustainability in general is a field that i'm in so i totally relate and it's it's um it's empowering so it's really awesome to hear that story um, so yeah, I mean, right now, uh, as, as you, uh, approach projects, uh, how big is your team now? So now you're in care, uh, from the smaller group to this, you still use the same mentality, but how big of a team do you have now? Uh, so it, it varies right now. It's, you know, it's moderately sized. We have video editors, we have designers, we have photo editors with copywriters, but it's not, it's not a huge digital team. It's still, we're still scrappy. Yeah. Um, we're still small. I actually don't mind being a little bit scrappy. I think it helps to creatively challenge you yeah. to think about how to how to use creative in more interesting, innovative ways. Um, you know, so but yeah, I'm I, I and I love my team. I have a really great relationship with my team. Um, and you know, I think that's really important to to have that relationship and to foster that uh, the spirit of creativity and the the courage and bravery to do new things. Um, just makes working every uh, on a day-to-day -day basis really exciting and really fun. Awesome. Yeah, I mean, going back to the, the scrappy mentality and keeping it small uh, really lets you kind of touch a lot of different aspects of uh, what you need to do and uh, really gives you some insight, I think, onto how those things are actually accomplished so you can have even more productive conversations with other team members. I mean, from my perspective, we don't do video necessarily, but um, you know, when you're doing like a website, the fact that I've worked in development helps me communicate that to them. Uh, and it wasn't my primary job, but I had to at, at some time. So taking on those extra roles really can give you a lot of skill sets that you need for, for leading a team. That's awesome. Um, so 
I mean, you kind of described your mindset uh, and the scrappy approach to projects, but uh, what, what do you kind of start off with? Like, what are some of the requirements when you set up a project so that you know what to achieve? Yeah, um, you know, I think, and, I, and I've really started to get better about this over the years, is that really good projects start off with a really good brief. Um, and, you know, having that brief, having that solid foundation of like, these are the audiences we're trying to reach, you know, these are the goals we're trying to set. Um, this is the call to action. These are the insights. This is the background information that you really need. A brief that you and the client sign off on is basically your manifesto for the project and it's if, if it's not solid the whole project can crumble uh in a in numerous ways that you know when i was just getting started out would happen a lot um so i i that's that's for me the brief the brief is the most important thing yeah i think on briefs i think i'd like to talk a little bit even more about that because i feel like it's one of those things that everybody says i need a brief you know like or like uh, and then like there's always a challenge to describe what that brief is. Uh, and I know there's definitely different briefs for different types of projects. I think one, I don't know, you can describe this maybe from your perspective too. I've, I've ran into issues where when, if you try to templatize too much of a brief too, it's also not very effective because you're trying to fill in some blanks that aren't necessary. So figuring out how to boil those really key points down is, is a challenge. So like how, what are some of those key points that, and what do you use? I mean, is it a Word document? It doesn't have to be necessarily anything crazy, but like, what, what do you do with that? Yeah, I mean, so yes, I have different briefs for different things. And, you know, for instance, we have like, you know, obviously a templatized brief that we've developed over time. It's a Word document. It's a tick the box thing. You know, some, some pieces of it, you know, are required, some are not. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but then for other projects that, so for instance, we do, you know, uh, we do this impact awards, which is a tentpole moment every year annually at CARE um, that we developed after I got started. And it's this big event um, that we do, had, which has gone digital, obviously, in, in, in response to COVID, which has actually been surprisingly made it even more successful in a lot of ways in terms of the audience it's reaching and also the ability to attract talent to come and speak at it means that the lower barrier of digital participation has been with been getting, you know, incredible talent and speakers to come and speak for care. Um, but, but we have a separate brief for that, that we've developed because we as the creative team kind of own that brief. Um, and, and so the, it's got very specific questions that are more relevant to the event than, you know, perhaps designing a website or a web page or something that we do as well. Yeah. Yeah, that makes that makes so sense. So yeah, as you uh, take on different types of projects, kind of curating those briefs is a, is a key. Um, it sounds obvious. Uh, I, it's just one of those things too, where you just don't want to stuff the brief with nonsense or uh, clean as quick and as uh, bulleted as you can get really, I think, uh, helps achieve what you're trying to get at. So it makes sense. And then diversifying your briefs in general. Um, on on that and and creating your brief, obviously you, you come up with the what needs to be in the project and what you've known from past projects. Um, how do you properly like assess the client's needs? Is it based off of that, obviously? But then, how else do you dive into their needs? Yeah. So signing off on a briefing 
obviously incorporates multiple conversations with the interested invested parties. Um, and that's really digging into like holes in the brief that we see, particularly trying to drive consumer insights to which will then impact the creative. Um, so I think that's like a huge part of it is to, to bring the client along with you in that process. Okay, yeah. And that's also one of the reasons why it's so important to nail the brief with the client, because at the end of the day, once you develop, to, sorry, once you deliver um, your sort of executed creative, if it meets the brief, then you can open the client comes back to you and is dissatisfied with something or whatever you always go, well, this was in the brief. This is what we had discussed. And, you know, and then from that clean slate, you can go like, if you want us to change things, we can, you know, we can absolutely do, you know, revisions and whatever, but you know, that will probably cost more money or take more time or whatever, just to level set. But if you didn't, if it doesn't meet the brief, then they have every right to say this, this doesn't work, you know? So I think that's a really important vital part of it is to agree on the brief, agree on the deliverables and, and then meet that at the end. I really like that. I mean, the journey you're taking, you're doing it, it's for client work. You know, I think that's something that often gets overlooked too, where, you know, you get really excited about uh, an execution type or what you want to do. And that vital step of conveying that to the client and taking them through the process of why it makes sense um, will allow you to have a leg to stand on uh, so that when mm -hmm. you get to that product and you've spent the hours, you don't have to redo it. Uh, I, yeah. I've definitely been in that boat before in the past. I think as a young designer, that's something that, that we see a lot of. Um, so we're in the business of communicating, communicating uh, what we're doing to the client is part of that, not just the, the end result. So that's, that's great, taking the client through that, that process. So Totally agree, yeah. Awesome. Yeah, so you know, now that we've got an idea of how you approach a project, uh, you know, you had the scrappy mindset that helped you develop uh, your skills. Um, one of the main skills that you use in almost all your, your work is storytelling. Uh, I mean, that, that travels across a bunch of media. It's not just multimedia campaigns like you work in, but video, website, social media. Um, one thing that you mentioned in our conversation was the importance of it uh, and what makes a difference between telling your audience about your cause is actually getting them to participate. So pushing it from just being a visual to taking part, call to action. Uh, that's where the storytelling really kicks in. Uh, and we know it's a key. So could you share a little bit about how you create a compelling story? I think that'd be amazing. Yeah, um, sure. So it's, it's a difficult question, but I mean, when I think about it from Again, video, let's just start there. It's kind of the easiest um, yeah, storytelling device to talk about. <laughs> um, you know, and then I think about it sort of two ways in terms of like, what's sort of our more narrative version versus more of a documentary versus more of a sort of animatic explainer. You know, there's more clearly, but that's sort of like three approaches. Um, I would say that with documentary, if you're thinking about how do we create a, a compelling story and we want, we have a subject that we're interested in um, to communicate that story. I generally tend to think um, the compelling story is really about how good the interviewer is. I think everybody has a compelling story to tell. Um, you know, yeah. everybody's lives is full of challenges. Everyone's overcoming obstacles. Everyone, uh, it, you know, has moments of, you know, power and, 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 um, and I think, and I think it's about the interviewer being able to find that story in a way that is authentic and honest and also um, delivered in a way that fulfills, you know, this 
fulfills the, the sort of needs of the call to action effectively. Um, so I tend to think about, you know, when I do an interview, I like to have a good relationship with the person who I am talking to. I have to make sure that they have very, a very good understanding of informed consent, um, which is like incredibly important, particularly for the work that CARE does because we work in such sort of fragile um, situations and locations um, where we want to, people to be um, protected and, and feel, that, feel comfortable that nothing's gonna happen. It's incredibly important in our work. Um, so that's part of it, sort of like our communications policy. Um, so informed consent, do no harm, that's those sort of things. But then in relation to you know, the interview questions is not going in and trying to get them to answer your story. You know, so like leading questions aren't as interesting to me as having a frank conversation with somebody and then they can deliver all the interesting parts of their life. And a lot of that has to do with asking the right questions, um, you know, noticing in things that they're saying like, oh, that, let's go down that tangent for a moment. You know, um, I think that's sort of something that delivers a really compelling story is the interview process. Uh, in terms of more sort of, you know, narrative pieces like, you know, the It's Time video, I think it's driven by really interesting in, you know, consumer insights. I think that's what makes a piece of storytelling compelling. Um, when I go to insights, I tend to think of, well, um, the, uh, the Old Spice commercials with the be the man you want your man to smell like, yes. uh, where Old Spice effectively had this, you know, this consumer driven insight that uh, the people that were buying deodorant uh, were, you know, um, sometimes the, the wives or the, the girlfriends of, of the men. Um, and so they were deciding which deodorants to buy. And so, you know, Old Spice, you know, smartly decided to, you know, sell to the consumer. Um, and that delivered this brilliant ad campaign that actually went incredibly viral uh, because it was driven by this really smart consumer insight with really, really great creative that was funny and engaging and friendly. And so I think that's like, a really great example of like an, a, an insight driving creative. Mm -hmm. And uh, at CARE, we've been doing a lot of that recently, particularly around sort of our pro-vaccine campaigns uh, for COVID, both domestically and internationally, trying to understand vaccine hesitancy and some consumer insights that are going into that to better understand how do we create compelling creative uh, to move these people um, up the margin of pro-vaccine and into a space where they feel less hesitant about it. So that's some of the work we've been doing. But yeah, I think that's those sort of parts of um, uh, consumer-driven insights are things that create really compelling content. Yeah, consumer. so the two directives for those two types of videos, basically creating an authentic experience uh, by just having a, a natural conversation and not leading the client uh, makes a lot of sense because it brings out your natural uh, person. Uh, and then those mm -hmm. insights, obviously, uh, driving uh, the the bottom line and all those. I think I'd like to talk a little bit about those insights actually, because finding those can be tricky and there's a lot of ways to go about that. So I was wondering if you could give us a little insight into how you find insights. Yeah, some of it's intuitive and testing, yeah. right? So you might have an intuition around what's gonna work. So for instance, with the It's Time Equal Marriage campaign at the time, um, a lot of people were approaching creative from the perspective and campaigning from the perspective of making the issue um, of you know, marriage quality a legal issue. So saying that people should be able to get married regardless of if, if they're, they're gay or straight um, based on the fact that there are legal requirements that come with marriage. So for instance, you can visit your partner in a hospital and you can adopt children and stuff like that. So they're saying we need to have equal marriage so everyone can have 
uh, these legal rights. Um, but then obviously the opposition came back and said, well, just have, you know, civil ceremonies then and we can just make it a legal thing and you can have your own thing and then we'll have marriages over here. So it wasn't working. Um, so instead, you know, I and my team, <laughs> very few, came together with this insight of what if we just made it about, you know, equal love, right? You know, if the love is equal, then marriage should be equal. And that was our approach. And that seemed to really resonate with people, but it was an intuition, right? It was driven by, you know, talking to people in the LGBT space, um, but there wasn't a lot of that. A lot of it, more of it was just like this great creative conversation over a coffee in the afternoon thinking, how do we move the needle on this? What if we did this POV video about equal marriage, you know, and equal love and that kind of worked. So that was great. But then you also, like with this vaccine stuff, we've been doing some very minor sort of focus grouping um, and audience testing to understand like, you know, what, what, how, why people are hesitant with vaccines and, you know, like, um, and testing that, you know, in, with our creative to see sort of what resonates with people. So this kind of, you know, intuition versus group testing versus just general research to understand the issue better, which can involve, involve like, for instance, if you get a client brief, just talking to the client, understanding the issue more, trying to find those insights that really drive the call to action and drive investment in the campaign. That's awesome. Yeah. On that note, um, uh, we want to, we're going to share in the chat, the link to that get up video uh, of equal marriage, which is a really fantastic video. Um, so there it just populated. Thank you, Sam. Really great. Check that out after this. Um, but you can kind of see what uh, Simon's actually talking about through that video too. Um, yeah. I mean, the focus groups that makes total sense, having to figure out those insights come from those natural conversations. Uh, and it's, again, I think it's one of those kind of things like uh, the, the brief where you can think, you can look at anything you want online and you can say, oh, that looks cool. But if you're not getting the actual conversation from somebody, uh, you're not, you're just gonna be, you end up replicating kind of the same things that are out there and they don't make those same kind of impacts. Um, so it's really valuable, really, really important stuff. Um, uh, more on the process too. Uh, I was wondering if we could talk about, I mean, is that the brainstorming process is kind of blended in there as well? Uh, do you guys take it back to a whiteboard and put all that together and put that in a brief or like, how do you bring it all together? Yeah, I like to approach all of my creative projects from a blue sky perspective. So it's sort of taking the brief at its bare bones and then saying, what is every idea that we can think of for this, including bad ones? Because yeah. often from the bad ideas come great, great little nuggets. Um, but yeah, and, and so I do, you know, I do an ideation session, um, which is basically, it's a whiteboard, go around the room, everybody contributes ideas, you know, we put them all up on the board. And then in the end, we put three blue dots on the things that we like the most, elevate them, talk about what makes them work. And then we go away, we come back, and then we continue to refine, refine, grow, refine, until we come to perhaps three concepts that we want to pitch yeah. um, to the client. And, you know, some people say like, oh, I want one safety in there. I'm like, I really don't want one safe one in there ever. <laughs> you know? <Nice>. Yeah. <laughs> Usually the client will pick that one and, <laughs> and then everyone will be disappointed. Um, so <laughs> I like to push it um, by having three ideas that we're all excited about. Um, and put that in front of the client and, and then see how we go from there. But yeah, that's the idea. And, and the people in those brainstorms, I think it's important um, to note that in terms of my process, and I, you know, I think most people do this, but um, it's not just like 
the copywriter and the designer and the video person. Like it's a lot of people, a lot of different minds. You know, it may be, you know, programmatic people. It might be people from the field. It, you know, it might be moms or, you know, it's, it's important to have a lot of different people in those settings. Usually people who don't get opportunities to contribute in these spaces are some of the people who have the most interesting, best unexpected ideas. Um, so I like to have like a really good diverse mix of people in those ideation sessions to really all it. So everyone is contributing and part of that process. Yeah. Yeah. That's another good key insight right there for sure. I think, um, it bringing it's, it, it goes back to diversity and perspective, being able to get something outside of your typical realm. I mean, as creative, everybody can get stuck. So even if you're the most creative person, you need those, uh, good and bad ideas all to come out to, to find the best ones. So that makes total sense. Um, so now that we've gotten that process and you know, you've worked through an idea and the client picked one and they didn't pick a safe one, which is also amazing. I think that that's another key insight uh, to kind of always push the, the, the needle because uh, it's so easy to default and you definitely want to show the client what they want, but you can't just like, if you just baseline it, they probably will ultimately select that one. So um, once you do find that really cool idea based off an insight and you go out and you do filming, we kind of talked a little about this. Um, you got the scrappy mentality. You're able to pull it all together with a small team. You do it, you get home. You, what, what do you look at in post? Like, how do you address your post concerns after you've already, uh, gone out and taken the, the video and, and done, got the content? Yeah, um, I mean, so going through a post-production process is, is always the most exciting part. For me, it's where you've worked so hard on the pre-production and the brief and the shoot has been a nightmare. You've been up since 4 a.m. and you've shot for a week and you're just like, I just want to get this thing in the edit. Um, and you start laying in the edit and you start putting it together. And then, you know, usually the first cut is terrible. <laughs> it just usually is because it doesn't turn out how you envisioned it. Um, maybe some, some, you know, some technical issues. So that's where you start to really massage the edit. You start to find the story in there that it's sort of leading into. So, um, you know, I, I feel like filmmaking is such a collaborative process. It's such an organic evolution of a process that, you know, I think trying to be so diligent and so like Kubrick about it is not gonna work generally unless you have billions and billions of dollars. Even yeah. then, you know, they still make it up. They still like, Marvel will throw CGI in backgrounds until like the last day just to figure stuff out. But I do, I do enjoy that process a lot. I think that's where it, you start to have these really great relationships with your editors and your video people to, to really start to have trust and build these edits together until you get to something that you are satisfied with and meets the brief. So again, like you may get into the edit and be like, oh, this isn't working exactly how I envisioned it to, but I found a way to make like, maybe the story didn't come out in the way that you expected, but it went in a more interesting area. As long as you're still able to hit that call to action in, in a way that makes people click and engages people um, and, it, and it conveys the messages that you want it to convey, I think you're still succeeding. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's like a huge part of it. And one of the things that I will often find is when making like content, you know, whether it's infographical websites or, you know, video content, it's, I will often find people on the client side, you know, and I totally understand it, wanting to include more and more information, oh, right? Yeah. It's like, <laughs> it needs to do, convey this piece. It needs to have this person in it, blah, 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 blah. 
And it's really, that's the part where it tends to get, you tend to go like, they need to get to the end of this video. <laughs> so they take the action. And if you keep putting stuff, barriers in front of them to the call to action, then they're never gonna take action. Um, so like, for instance, explainer videos and infographics and stuff like that. It's like, just put your key insights that make people click. Um, so I think that's like part of client trust, working them, working with them through like the edit and saying, trust us with this. This is a really great engaging story. If you add all these slides and you know large pieces of information, it's going to stop people watching or getting invested in what's happening on screen. So, yeah, I think that would be. I hope that sort of answers the question. I guess that was just yeah, right about way. It does. I mean, what you're basically, I think, just to recap, I think you're describing this idea. It it goes back to the the scrappy mentality, and you have a brief with key insights, and you have where you, what you want to achieve, but you're not writing specifically pages of exactly how every scene has to go. You're going in there, right. yeah, yeah, with that idea, and you let the idea kind of evolve. So you don't restrict yourself on that nature either, which I think is a really key insight as well, because that's what allows you. I think me particularly when I come when I have a project too, and I I have a vision for it, and I don't have all the details. Once I start getting into it, I start working through those kinks, and it. it presents new cool things out of that. And that's part of the storytelling, finding what is making sense as, as you progress. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, particularly with production, it's like, you know, people sort of sometimes describe production as just endlessly problem solving. <laughs> um, so like I've been to shoots where it's like you, you show up and it started to snow. And sometimes people are like, what do we do about this? And it's like, incorporate it. It's amazing. <laughs> what a go. treat. Um, <laughs> so yeah, it's always about sort of going with the flow a bit rather than resisting it. That's awesome. Um, one more kind of aspect on storytelling. I'm wondering if you could describe and tell us about a successful project where you kind of had to push yourself with a lot of these challenges uh, as an overview. If you could give us a project example, that'd be awesome. Yeah, I shot a video for uh, UNICEF um, where we were trying to portray the scale of the refugee crisis in Syria um, called Empty Manhattan. Um, and basically the concept was, you know, we, we open with shots of New York City completely empty of people. Like there's nobody there. There's empty subway cars, empty Times Square, empty streets, you get it. And then we reveal like um, that if, you know, we say if, if everyone in New York City disappeared overnight, people would notice. And then we sort of said, um, I don't remember the exact number, but it's like 3.3 million people, Syrians have um, um, been forced from their homes, um, notice them. Um, and so that was the concept. Um, then there was challenge of having to empty Manhattan. <laughs> Um, Not last year, but yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, in COVID times, that would have been relatively easy. Uh, <laughs> but also probably wouldn't have been as compelling because we were like, well, that's just COVID. Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, but so five years ago or whenever it is, six years ago, uh, uh, we, we just had to figure it out. So we basically just got a, a crew in a van driving around Manhattan at 3 a.m. to 8 a.m. finding you know, empty streets, finding empty subways, um, just like literally searching wherever we could to find places that we could shoot that had nobody in it. Um, and then occasionally there was some shots with some people in it that we just had to edit 
them out in post, which was really hard. Yeah. Um, but we figured out scrappy ways to do that. And then we had our, we put all of our time and energy into like a hero shot of empty Times Square because we knew that was the one that people go like, okay, yeah. that's really interesting. I've never seen that. Uh, so that's the one that we like put some actual like effects into and actually like I brought in somebody to help me do that. And, you know, so it was like, here's how we invest the money in this to, for the hero shot and the rest will kind of work with it. Um, so that was kind of like a really fun scrappy project that we made for very little money. But again, was like super successful. It was, you know, it was Unisys like biggest video at the time. So um, it was just like really cool to have this, this interesting insight of like, oh, 3.3 million, you know, refugees at the time uh, who had been forced out of Syria is actually equivalent to uh, Manhattan. So maybe we can do something with that. Yeah. That's really great. I mean, that goes to show too, all that effort in the beginning, getting that concept, you'll find a way to achieve it if you get to the concept. Um, so I mean, that's such a challenge, emptying New York, that's really hard to even conceptualize how you would do that. Um, but just getting out there, finding the way that you did, that's, that's what you kind of have to do uh, to, achieve, to achieve the goal there. So that's awesome. Um, all right, we're coming close to, to the end here. So I'm gonna, in the final set, I wanna talk even more about the mindset in general, because I think that there's a lot there. Um, uh, we aren't always given what we need up front too. So being able to think quickly on your feet allow you to adjust what you need. So let's talk a little bit about how you adjust. You know, So what are some of those common hurdles that you might run into? I know there's a ton of different projects, so we can stick on video or a documentary uh, series or just video in general? Um, so common hurdles that we have to overcome. Uh, yeah, um, common hurdles are budgetary restraints, um, going into places where we are unaware of like the people that we're gonna be shooting. So often we'll be traveling to different countries to capture stories. When I went to shoot the White Helmets in Turkey, um, you know, part of the, the issue with that was to do it without alerting the Turkish authorities that we were doing it because people mm -hmm. were sneaking in from Syria <laughs> for training. Um, and so we kind of, that was like under the cloak of night and um, then also sneaking in like red cameras <laughs> and being like, we're just shooting footage of your lovely city <laughs> for ourselves. <laughs> um, <laughs> yep, that's a challenge. <laughs> Yeah, but then we didn't know who we would be talking to. And so again, that was just like, we, we, I just went into, we just set up an interview space and set up this camera, develop, I talked to the DP about um, how we wanted to sort of shoot this in a compelling way. And we developed this like strategy of sort of zooming in and out so we could sort of mix up the shot so it wasn't all flat and having them look directly at the camera as opposed to me, because I actually really liked that as an interview format is having people look into the camera because as it develops more of a emotional connection with the audience yeah. it's more like you're talking to the audience versus somebody off camera um i stole that one from fog of war um <laughs> many years ago um but yeah and and but again that's where it's the most interesting exciting is literally meeting these people i would never in the world talk to um these heroes from syria um, and learning about the incredible heroism and stories and the, the work that they do and then being able to take that to the world. It's just like so, so cool. And particularly 
you know, in a, with Syria, the, all the media representation at the time was just so negative. It's just, which, I mean, it was, it's just like Syria was being bombed. People were dying. Civil war was breaking out, refugees, crisis. You know, it, it was, it was just awful. And so to be able to say, well, there's also this group of rescue workers called the White Helmets who literally go into the rubble and they rescue people. And that, and they are the sign of hope and people and kids look up to them in the streets and think, I want to be a White Helmet one day. It was just such a beautiful idea and so really just trying to elevate that story it was really exciting and through video and then you know inventive campaigning through like the Nobel Peace Prize campaign that we developed and up to the sort of Netflix movie that won the Academy Awards so yeah it's just really really exciting to see that story develop and slowly get traction. Very cool yeah um yeah I mean that's such incredible work uh it's hard to even comment on that definitely recommend guys to go check out Simon's videos at the end of this a lot of really great stuff um so I had a question from the audience member uh Christian uh and this is maybe a common hurdle potentially uh when you're large amounts of experience of uh, making your videos and stories revolve around social justice do you ever feel a sense of creative burnout and if so how do you combat that um, sorry, I, I had a little bit of a sound issue there. Can you repeat that? Yeah, no problem. Um, ba basically, also, uh, because of your background uh, experience and revolving around social justice, do you ever feel a sense of creative burnout? And if so, how do you combat that? Primarily, he says, early in your career when you were working as an individual. Yeah, um, yeah, it's really, it's a big issue. And I actually had burnout earlier this year. Um, I had to take like two weeks to just for myself to recuperate. Um, I think COVID's doing that to everyone right now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I mean, there it, it's just, it's really hard, particularly working in social justice because as you, it feels like you move the needle and then somebody comes and rips the needle off. Like it's with climate change, it just keeps getting worse. We see escalating poverty, escalating racial injustice, escalating economic inequality. We see unemployment. I mean, it's, it, it can just be, you know, particularly working in that field where you live that every day and it feels like the emergencies just keep coming and coming and coming. And I get the situation reps every morning from, you know, what's happening in Bangladesh yeah. or Ethiopia, Nigeria, I, you know, South Sudan. It's, 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 a, it's a lot. And then to take that and go like, what's a creative idea <laughs> can just be, you know, <laughs> really hard. Mm -hmm. um, but, but I think that's just sort of, to go like, oh, you know what, actually the work we're doing is is making an impact. It's helping people. If it helps one person, then it's worth it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so, and, and, and to see, to feel the joy of being able to put together a story of, of, in a way that really treats the subject with dignity and empowers them and really celebrates the work that they're doing. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's just really that's the inspiration that I draw from it that gives me the courage to continue to do this work every day. I said the word courage is probably not the right word. I don't need courage to do this. I'm super privileged to do this. I guess it's the joy, you know, inside to feel like I'm celebrating these stories. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, yeah, it is a it's a weird um, middle point where you're in. you're like right in between doing great work to highlight these amazing things while also having to recognize all the craziness around it. So that's a probably a constant struggle. Uh, totally. Yeah. Okay, I had another question, actually, you mentioned Beg uh, Bangladesh, uh, Laura uh, mentioned on the chat, have you done any, uh, any work for, um, forgive me if I say this wrong, uh, Rohingya refugees? 
Yeah, we, we do work um, with Rohingya and Bangladesh. In fact, we work in their refugee camps where we deliver sanitation services through outwash programs um, to stop and battle um, the spread of COVID. Um, we also have done storytelling there, elevating the stories of refugees there. Um, so yeah, we do a, an enormous amount of, of work in Bangladesh, uh, life-saving work every day. And I personally have never been um, to to the refugee camps there, uh, but that's part of um, part of our work as well. Is and part of my work is to is to uh, sort of um, employ storytellers and train storytellers in these locations so that people can tell their own stories. We in a lot of ways, we would like to sort of help to decolonize storytelling um, so we can empower people who live in country to tell their own stories and, you know, uh, and, and program participants as well to tell their own stories. Um, so that's part of the work we're, we're doing and some of the work that we definitely have been doing in Bangladesh right here itself. Very cool. Awesome. Um, well, we're coming up close to the end here. So I'm going to ask one more question on the mind state. Um, and I'm wondering, uh, so what are some of the ways that you push yourself out of the budget creatively, if you're, you have restrictions, how, how can you use that strapping mentality to push yourself further? Yeah. Um, I, I like restrictions. I like to start again, I start all projects from a blue sky place and then figure out how can we pull this off? Um, yeah. and you know, so for instance, with the it's time video, like the production value and it feels really quite good considering it costs nothing to make. And it was done with like one DP who had a DSLR, one actor, me, and a producer in a van getting food and just driving around Sydney <laughs> and just like jumping on roller coasters and, you know, <laughs> um, just doing fun things. So, I mean, that was just using mates and saying like, oh, you're having a Sunday barbecue? Well, can we just show up and shoot something? You know, um, so really taking something that should have been a high production thing and just finding fun creative ways to, to make it work. Um, you know, I think that scrappy mentality just, it, it, it brings a lot of, it requires a lot of passion and belief in your project, which makes your project stronger, right? So like if somebody gives me a hundred thousand dollars to make something, maybe I'll just, I don't know, maybe, maybe I won't feel as compelled to challenge people mm -hmm. on the creative, right? Cause I'm like, you've given me this much money. I feel like I owe it to you to deliver exactly what you want. Um, versus somebody's like honestly i got five grand or a grand but i you know i this is a really important issue can you think you can figure something out and i'm like i have an amazing idea if you believe in me enough <laughs> yeah that's awesome. like and it may not work but this is like a really cool idea and maybe they wouldn't take a hundred thousand dollar punt on it but maybe they'd take a five grand or a grand punt on it and that's where that fun scrappy creative like we're we're, we're gonna try something here and that's i think where really great ideas come from that's awesome. Yeah, that's great insight. I mean, that's another thing too. I think uh, maybe you could share a little bit on that is that uh, by when you're given a restriction like that and there's only so much the client can offer it, to be able to take that as empowerment for yourself is something that I think creatives could use uh, as well. You know, um, mm -hmm. it's not, if you're not given the budget that you want, how can you use the budget to push your creativity? So you just like inverse that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, and I, I've gotten really big budgets before and I've, you know, I've produced creative, innovative work and I enjoy that process. And I but I also enjoy the, the scrappy stuff too. I think it's yeah. just really, it's an opportunity for, for real innovation 
um, there because you don't want to try and produce a hundred thousand dollar thing with five grand. You just don't. Yeah. It's not gonna. It's not. A, it's not a great idea. <laughs> um, but you can produce something really different and interesting with that, and see it works. So yeah. Awesome. Well, this has been really fantastic. Let me see. Um, let's see. No, I'll just ask. I think to close it all out, I'd just like to ask uh, a fun, a fun question, uh, if you don't mind. It's been really insightful. Everything you talked to us uh, about today, and I just want to know, like, where is the coolest place that you've traveled to through work? And you've been a lot of places, and then maybe you don't have to put a number one to it, but uh the coolest place. I mean, I really, uh, yeah. I mean, it's hard because it. It's not, it's, I mean, I love all the places I travel yeah. to, but usually the places that I travel to that mean the most to me are the people that I meet there. Um, so, and the stories that I learned. So for me, it was going to Turkey and talking to the White Helmets. It was really just super powerful. Like I loved going to Cambodia as well and yeah. talking to garment workers there and learning about their stories. Um, you know, there's been wonderful experiences in, you know, South Africa and, you know, Thailand. But I think something about that experience with, um, Syria and really getting underneath the the humanity of the issue. Yeah, you know, being able to talk to Syrians who are living it, and then the next that that night they drive back, you know, under the cloak of darkness over the border, and it's just, I'm just like, I, I I can't I can't believe you guys, you're amazing. Yeah. So, yeah, that's yeah. inspiring for sure. Um, well. Wow, that's incredible stories. Uh, thank you so much, Simon. And before we exit, I also would like to say uh, Simon is hiring. So we'll put a link in here uh, in the chat. There it is. If you're interested in a senior design designer role, uh, Simon would be a fantastic person to work for. Uh, so I really appreciate you, Simon, taking the time out today and talking us about your process and your mentality. Thank you. Thank you, Lucas. And thanks everyone for joining. This was a lot of fun. Absolutely. All right, guys, we'll see you next time. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye, everyone.